Greetings, podcast friends. Welcome to Wisdom from Above, where we go beyond the reasoning of man to the revelation of God. There are thousands of voices declaring man's wisdom, but we want to discover God's wisdom, wisdom from above. God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. By studying and obeying the Word of God, we gain wisdom from above, and we cultivate skill in living. In this ninth season of Wisdom from Above, we're investigating various psalms to find personal guidance, practical advice, and divine insight for the tough issues of life. Today, we're going to be digging into Psalm 73. The superscription tells us this is a psalm of Asaph. It is a a song to be accompanied by the plucking of a stringed instrument. And Asaph was a Levite, the son of Berechiah, of the family of Gershom. He was an eminent musician, appointed by David to preside over the sacred choral services. In Psalm 73, Asaph is agonizing over a very troubling problem. You see, Asaph is struggling with his lot in life. He sees the wicked prospering, and he is envious. He is seeking to please God, and yet he is struggling. How can a good God let this happen? Why do good people suffer and bad people prosper? A question that many struggle with today. So turn with me in your thoughts to Psalm 73. First of all, this passage tells us what he acknowledged. In verse 1, he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Pure means more than clean. It means totally committed to God. And heart refers to the in their thinking. So they are pure in heart. They're living in reality, not in illusion. They're believing the truth, not a lie. And what Asaph says is he knows that God is good to Israel. God is good to those who are pure in heart. But knowing that just makes this whole problem of the wicked prospering even more difficult to understand. And in verse 2 he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So Asaph is saying he's in a precarious situation here. He's in danger of losing his footing. How can a good God let wicked people prosper and godly people suffer? Our culture is caught up in the lifestyles of the rich and famous. We can easily become envious of those who have more than we do. Envy leads to self-pity. And self-pity leads to despair. We can become consumed with the things of this life. Some Christians have turned to gambling. Some Christians have turned to the lottery. Some Christians have gone deeply into debt. Far too many Christians are consumed with possessions and popularity and prosperity. Sadly, many false preachers are... finding success by promising health and wealth. And then we see those athletes and movie stars, politicians, businessmen, and others who are arrogant and wicked and yet prosperous. 
And we can very easily become envious of their position and power and prosperity. Well, that's what he acknowledged. He acknowledged the blessedness of God and the blight of envy. Then, then he tells us what he expected. You see, Asaph was trying to get the facts of faith to measure up to the facts of life. His faith believed that good people should always prosper. Bad people should always struggle. Uh, Job's comforter expected the same thing. Job was told by one of his so-called comforters, a good man always prospers. Jesus' disciples seemed to expect this as well. In the Gospel of John, a blind man was brought to Jesus, and the disciples asked this question, Who sinned, this man or his parents? They just assumed if anyone was suffering, it was because of sin. But Jesus says, It was not because of his sin, nor because of his parents' sin. Asaph also expected that the righteous would prosper. But here's what he saw. Verse 3, Asaph says, I'm envious of the arrogant and prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4, he says, The wicked are disgustingly healthy, basically. They're well-fed, they're well-dressed, they're well-healed. Verse 5, it seems to Asaph that life comes to the wicked on a silver platter. It appears to Asaph that the wicked are free from troubles and trials and hardship and heartaches. So what he saw was the seeming blessings of the ungodly. But in addition to that, he saw the sinful behavior of the ungodly. In verse 6, he says, They wear pride like a necklace and they wear violence like a garment. The ungodly are self-assured, self-appraised, self-approved. These wicked people are prosperous and polished and proud. But they're also violent. They don't care who they have to use or what they have to do to achieve their selfish pursuits. Verse 7, their eye bulges from fatness. They demand and fight for whatever they see and like. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They do whatever they want to do. They go after whatever they want to have. They, according to verse 8, they scoff and speak wickedly and oppress others. They mock Asaph and they like to throw their weight around. So he sees the seeming blessings of the ungodly, the sinful behavior of the ungodly, and also the shocking blasphemies of the ungodly. In verse 9 and 10, they mock God and they lord it over others. But, like thirsty dogs around a well, the Hebrews hang around the wicked and arrogant just to receive what slops over. One of the things that really upsets Asaph is that these ungodly people are well treated in spite of the fact that they malign and mock God. And then according to verse 11, they, they question God's knowledge. You know, how could God know? God doesn't know. I've heard people say, if God is all-knowing, and all-powerful, then why does this wicked man prosper? Why do good people suffer? And then they would go on to say that either God is not all-powerful, or he's not all-good. They would say that God, God must not be all he's cracked up to be. Now, I want to stop right here and acknowledge the truth. We know that God is good all the time. We know that God is all-powerful. 
We also know that God knows all things, actual and possible. So the claim of these wicked people is wrong. It's flat out wrong. Well, we've seen what he acknowledged and what he saw. Now he goes on to talk about what he felt. In verse 12, envy. He said, the wicked are always in comfort. The wicked are always in luxury. The wicked always enjoy pleasure and prosperity. Well, you see, Asaph's thinking was twisted. His emotions were distorted. His focus was inward. And so he has this envy, and and he can't really see things. He, He thinks that... Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. They don't always, but that's the way it seems to him, and he envy. And then, verse 13, we see despair. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease, and they increase in riches. Excuse me, verse 13. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. So we move from envy to self-pity. And despair. You know, basically, it hasn't paid to serve God. My devotion to God's been a waste of time. And then in verse 14, for all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. So there's bitterness. So it goes to envy, self pity, and despair to bitterness. And I'd like to anchor a point right here self pity always leads to bitterness. We've seen, uh, and now he talks about what he did. Step one, he turned from self. We see this in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood the end. So this is what he did. He turned from self. Asaph had enough wisdom to keep his mouth shut. He wrestled with this problem in the arena of his soul. And all of his wondering and pondering was only added burden. He couldn't understand. He still had no answer. Until, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until. This is the pivotal verse in this psalm. This is the key to the change of heart. Asaph went purposefully, intentionally, and consciously into the place of God's presence. And I'd like to make an observation here. Turning to the Lord helps us turn from self. So there was a change of focus in his turn from self and and in his turn to God. He was thinking like a natural man. Now he's thinking like a spiritual man. He was reasoning from human emotions Now he's reasoning from divine truth. He was looking only at the visible. Now he's looking at the invisible. He was looking at the temporal. Now he's looking at the eternal. He was seeing things as they seem to be. Now he's seeing things as they really are. And this all happened when he came into the sanctuary of God. He intentionally came into the presence of God. He intentionally went to God. Well, how does a person today come into the sanctuary of God? Well, according to Hebrews 4, 11, 13, you come unto the written word of God. 
in openness. According to Hebrews 4, 15, 16, you come unto the living word of God in prayer. And according to Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, you come to the church, not forsaking the assembling together. And I'd like to anchor some other applications right here. Why do you go to church? Do you go to meet friends? You go to sing songs? You go to listen to a preacher? That all sounds good, and it is good, but you could go away and never meet God. You see, God has a way of meeting people who seek Him. Our first priority in going to church is to meet with God and to worship God and to hear from God. And then secondly, we do so with associates, with other believers, with our friends. But God is a way of speaking to people who listen to his word. And so he's about to fall here, Asaph. He's about to slip. He's about to give up. He's gone from um, being envious to being self-pitying to being despairing and to being bitter And now he has met with God. He's in a place where he can hear from God and hear God's word. And here's what he discovered. Verses 18 and 20. Well, first of all, Asaph perceived the fate of the wicked. We see that. This is this first discovery. Verses 18 to 20. Verse 18. The wicked have no real solid foundation. I think of the death of Richard like Howard Hughes or the famous like Michael Jackson or the powerful like Adolf Hitler. They have no real solid foundation. He says, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Secondly, they have no real inner peace. He says in verse 19, oh, how are they brought to desolation as in a moment? They're utterly consumed with terrors. They have no real inner peace. Jackie Gleason once said, there's one thing of which I am desperately afraid. I may never make heaven. You see, He was laughing on the outside, but he was hopeless on the inside, crying out on the inside. And then, not only do they have no real solid foundation and no real inner peace, they have no real lasting glory. According to verse 20, as a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. It's kind of like a nightmare, you know. Forget and remember no more. Asaph overestimated the ungodly man's prosperity. You see, the ungodly man's life was based on temporary things. His prosperity was like a flash in the pan, appearing for a moment and then bam, like a vapor, it is gone. So discovery number one, he perceived the fate of the wicked. Discovery number two in verses 21 and 22, he perceives the foolishness of his thinking. Asaph gained deeper insight into his own condition. He did not stop with a corrected viewpoint. He evaluated himself to see just how he got into this mess. Too many people fail to evaluate. Asaph saw three causes in verses 21 and 22. He says, Then my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant I was like a beast before you. He says, first of all, he was foolish. He'd worked himself into a frenzy. He had a distorted perspective. He made a mountain of it, a molehill. He looked at the temporary as though it was eternal. He had a wrong focus. 
He left God out of the equation. Secondly, he says he was ignorant. There were things he didn't know that he should have known. Things like God loves him. Things like life doesn't consist in the abundance of things a man possesses. Things like God never makes mistakes. Things like life with God can be eternal and joyful. Thirdly, he was like an animal. Uh, he, he was concerned only for himself. Um, he was concerned only about the here and now. That, that, that's an animal. Humans should think beyond the here and now. Discovery number three, he perceived the fortune of the upright. So not only did he perceive the fate of the wicked and the foolishness of his thinking, he also perceived the fortune of the upright. In verse 23, he discovered God's love. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. God holds him. God loves him while the wicked are repelled and exiled and estranged and finally cut off. The upright are called, welcomed, received, constantly loved by God. He gained a deeper insight into his father's care. He had underestimated his own prosperity. And then not only God's love, but also God's presence, that God is always with him. He never leaves us or forsakes us. And in verse 24, God's guidance. He says, you'll guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. God always guides him. The Lord is his shepherd. The future is as bright as the promises of God. And then in verse 25, God's sufficiency. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside you. God is always faithful. He learned that if a man has everything else but doesn't have God, he's a pauper. And if a man has nothing else but he has God, he's rich. God is all I need. God is the answer to all our needs. I don't need what the ungodly man has. God is the psalmist's supreme delight. God is the psalmist's supreme desire. And then verse 26 actually talks about his faithfulness. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's he sees that God's faithfulness, and even when he fails, God remains faithful. God's faithfulness far outweighs our feebleness and our faithlessness. And then the sixth thing that he discovered was God's perspective. In verse 27, For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You've destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. He sees now the plight of his neighbor, the wicked, are the ones to be pitied. They are the ones who will perish. So we have, we have seen what he has discovered, and now he talks about what he decided to do, and that is to be committed to God, and we see that in the last verse. But it is good for me to draw near to God and put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. So be committed to God. Number one, draw near to God. Number two, trust in the Lord. And number three, declare all his works. What have we learned? How can we deal with envy, self-pity, and despair? Well, we just saw it. Number one, draw near to God. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Stop looking at what seems to be and start looking at what really is. Stop looking at the temporal and start looking at the eternal. 
draw near to God, seek his face, enjoy his presence, commune with him, listen to him, talk with him, bask in his love. Number two, trust in the Lord. Turn to the written word, the Bible, in openness. Turn to the living word, Jesus, in prayer. Turn to the holy God, our Father, in worship. Turn to the sovereign Lord in trust. Rest in his love. Rest in his care. Trust him to do what is best. He's worthy of your trust. Number three, declare the goodness of the Lord. As the psalmist says, come before his presence with thanksgiving. Come into his courts with praise. Magnify the Lord and exalt his name. Praise the Lord and tell others about him. Declare his goodness to others. And that brings us to number four, reaching out. The wicked are not to be envied. They're to be pitied. The wicked will perish. The wicked don't know God. Those who do not have faith in God will be destroyed. We should have compassion for them. We should be concerned for them. They need the Lord. They need forgiveness. They need love. They need hope. The person who prepares for this life, but not for the next life, is wise for a moment, but a fool forever. Only the one who is prepared to die is truly prepared to live. Are you prepared for eternity? You see, God so loved the world, that's you and me, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Are you prepared for eternity? Are your family members prepared for eternity? Are your friends prepared for eternity? Is your neighbor prepared for eternity? Are your coworkers prepared for eternity? Are your fellow student prepared for eternity? People need the Lord. Ask God to give you a compassion for the lost. Ask God to give you a passion for him and a compassion for lost. Ask God to give you a love for those who are without hope. Ask God to give you opportunities to reach out to them because people need the Lord. And this concludes this episode of Wisdom from Above. Next week, we will look at how to make the most out of life. Thank you for being a part of my listening family. Thank you for telling others about wisdom from above. This is Dr. Harlan Betts, wishing you a great week and God's blessings. I am deeply honored that you are joining me in this passionate quest for wisdom from above. <laughs>